Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I first started getting kicked out of things when I was five years old. I was in a kindergarten Sunday school class at a large church in North Austin when it first happened. Now, I'll be honest, I don't recall the exact details around the event. Maybe I took a little more than my share of goldfish that day, or I snuck an extra juice box. I, I, I don't remember. All I know is that there was this kid named Caleb. He called me fat, and I tackled him into a table. The teacher, who was also my mother tried to break it up as quickly as she could, but the Sunday school director was already in the room and I was forcibly removed. They called it a temporary suspension, but I am like 99% sure that it would have never been lifted had my mom not threatened to quit teaching Sunday school if they didn't let me come back. That was the first time I got kicked out of something, but not even close to the last. I've been kicked out of private schools, I've been kicked off of sports teams. I've been kicked infamously out of my youth group, something I've talked about a handful of times over the years here at Restore. And when I share these stories, people usually tell me I should put all of them into a book. Not that long ago, I was joking with my wife, Amy, about doing just that, and she said, you could subtitle it, My Journey from Getting Kicked Out of a Church to Starting One. Maybe someday, I'll write that book. I tell myself I'm putting it off because I'm too busy, and that is true. But I know deep down that a big part of it is that I don't really want to relive all of those stories again, especially the ones that are in the not-so-distant past. It's funny to joke about, but the truth is, getting kicked out of things is painful. Humans weren't built for rejection, and yet I don't know anyone who hasn't had to endure it during their life. Even if you haven't been kicked out of quite as many things as I have, we have all experienced rejection. Sometimes it's because of who we are. Sometimes it's because of something that we've done. And other times, there doesn't seem to be any logical reason at all. But no matter how or why it happens, it always, always hurts. Rejection is a fact of life, like death or taxes, some would say. It is the byproduct of our broken world. But you see, God is all about repairing that brokenness. He's about reversing the rejection. He wants to include everyone in his family, no matter who they are or what they've done. Radical inclusion of all people is a core tenet of God's kingdom. It's a theme woven throughout all of scripture, but one of the clearest pictures of it is found in a story that we're going to look at together right now. Remember, we're in this series called Kingdom Incarnate, where we're looking at how Jesus embodied the kingdom of God we were just talking about all throughout his life. You see, he didn't just teach about it, he demonstrated it too, in everything from big miracles in front of huge crowds to small interactions with ordinary people. Today's story occurs in front of a big crowd, but it's actually not a miracle per se. It's an interaction with a group of pretty ordinary folks. In this passage, we see Jesus embody 
the kingdom value of radical inclusion, even though it means breaking an Old Testament law to do it. It's seriously one of my very favorite stories in the entire Bible. I'm so excited to look at it with you right now. So we're going to be in chapter 8 of John's account of Jesus' life. You can find it by just like searching John 8 on your phone or your computer or by looking it up in your Bible. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four accounts of Jesus' life. John is the final one there. So we're going to be in chapter 8 or the verses will be on the screen as we go and you can follow along there. But before we begin the story, there's actually something that we need to address about this passage of Scripture, and it's this little inscription that's found above this passage in most Bibles. It reads something like this, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Some of your Bibles may have the whole section italicized. There are old Bibles that actually don't include it at all. But to fully explain the depth of this statement, we would need to do an entire study on like how the Bible was put together, how scripture is translated, how ancient manuscripts are classified and dated. We may do that someday, maybe in a class or something like that, but today's not that day. So for our purposes today, we're just going to take that statement at face value. This story was not found in the oldest copies of John's account of Jesus's life that we have. It also doesn't really fit the whole narrative arc at this point in the story. So scholars have concluded that it probably didn't take place chronologically in this section. But those same scholars still believe that it is a real story in the sense that it really happened. It may not have taken place at this point in the story, but it took place nonetheless. And why is that? Well, because this story is such a perfect example of Jesus' character. Things we already know to be true about him are illustrated inside of it, that he is loving, that he is on the side of the marginalized, that he is always ready to step in and help someone who's in need, and that he isn't afraid to speak truth to powerful people like the religious leaders. Many scholars posit that this true story was so well known and beloved by the first century church that they made sure it was included in the scriptures. And although I'm not a scholar per se, I completely agree with that assessment. And so I'm so glad that this story was preserved and included in our Bibles because it is such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is all about. There's no doubt in my mind that the story we're about to look at is real and that it happened because when I read it and we study it together, I think you'll see that it helps Jesus come alive in such beautiful, intimate ways for us. So let's dive in. John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and Pharisees, those are the kind of other religious leaders of the time, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down. Remember, stooped down. We're going to come back to it in a second. He stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So John leaves no doubt about why this happens. There's no question why this woman is brought before Jesus. He says it directly. The religious leaders were trying to trap him. Their goal is to get Jesus to say something or do something which will discredit him in the eyes of the huge crowd that's following him around. That's why they toss her down in front of him in front of the huge crowd. 
But why all this concerted effort by the religious leaders against Jesus? Well, to answer that question, we have to understand a little bit of background about the religious leaders. And simply put, they hated Jesus because he was messing with the two most important things in their life, their money and their power. These religious leaders weren't just experts in Old Testament law. They were experts in how to use religion to gain power and to extort money, all from the very people they were supposed to be pastoring, nurturing, helping, and supporting. And how they did this was really quite brilliant. See, the religious leaders told the people not to trust their own faith or their own feelings, but to only trust God's truth. Now, this doesn't sound all that bad until you understand that these religious leaders claim to be the only ones who could properly interpret what God's truth really was. They convinced the people that they alone knew what would make God happy and what would make God mad. Unsurprisingly, the religious leaders claimed that all the stuff which resulted in them getting more power and more money made God very happy. And all the stuff that took power and money out of their hands and democratized it among the people made God very mad, they said. We see this playbook still being used by some religious leaders today. As scripture says, there is nothing new under the sun. But here is where these first century religious leaders, here's where their big problem with Jesus comes in. Because Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to teach and demonstrate a message of unconditional love. From his very first sermon at his hometown synagogue to his interactions with the crowds who followed him, even that day, Jesus models this kingdom value of radical inclusion for all people. He keeps saying things like, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The last will be first, and the first will be last. He says, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant of all. He tells his hometown synagogue, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. He says the poor and the meek and the lowly are blessed in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He even tells a rich young ruler who approaches him and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life to sell all he has and give it to the poor. Those aren't great messages if you're obsessed with money and power. Jesus was even more blunt, though, when he talked about these religious leaders directly. He says they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. More than anything else, Jesus continually proclaimed the truth that all people are loved by God. Not because of who they are or what they've done, but because they are his children. And there wasn't anything that people could do to make God love them more or to make him love them less. This message that we now know as the gospel or the good news was unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. It was startling. It was scandalous. To the people in the crowds, it was beautiful. It was hope-filled. It was a removal of the heavy burden that the religious leaders had placed on their shoulder by God. Remember, this same Jesus is the one who said, bring me your heavy burdens and I will give you rest. I will take your load off of your shoulders. But as good of news as it was for the people in the crowd, it was very threatening to the religious leaders and especially to their money and their power. 
Because if the people stopped being afraid of God getting angry at them for doing exactly what the religious leaders told them to do or not doing what the religious leaders told them to do, if they realized that God loves them unconditionally and that he wants them to experience the abundant life, the religious leaders would lose all power, all ability to extort money from their folks. So they, the religious leaders, conclude that Jesus has to be stopped at all costs. Remember, John tells us this is the whole reason they bring the woman to Jesus that day. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, quick spoiler, this particular trap is not going to work, as we'll see in just a moment. But the religious leaders are not going to stop trying. They eventually bribe Judas, one of Jesus' best friends, to turn on him. They illegally arrest Jesus, unjustly try him, and then turn him over to the Romans to be publicly executed on the cross. So seductive is the allure of money and power that it provokes these supposed men of God to commit murder, to preserve it. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I tell you all that in order to help us understand the mindset of these religious leaders in this moment, as they fling this poor woman down in front of Jesus, this is the why behind it. And it shows us just how far they're willing to go. Okay, back to the story. The religious leaders have tossed this woman in front of the crowd, in front of Jesus, and they turn to Jesus and they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? As devious as this plan was, again, it was actually a pretty brilliant plan by these religious leaders. Because what they say about the law of Moses is true. Here's what Leviticus 20 Verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now, notice there is no adulterer in this story, only the adulteress. Again, that lets us know that these religious leaders, they didn't care about justice, and they certainly didn't care about this woman. They were just trying to trap Jesus. And like I said, it was a good plan overall, because Jesus now has to choose between breaking the law of Moses or being a party to the killing of this woman. But if he chooses the former, the religious leaders will say something like, hey, we told you he wasn't from God. He doesn't even obey God's laws. But if he chooses the latter, he will destroy this message of radical inclusion for all people that he keeps on preaching. So let's see what happens. Verse six, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, it's important to say, no one knows what he wrote. Some think he was writing down all the names of the other adulterers present among the religious leaders. Others think he was listing the sins of those who brought the woman to him. We don't know, but all we know is that he doesn't answer their question at first. Instead, he changes his posture. He goes from standing and teaching to stooping down. I imagine the religious leaders are a little bewildered by this response from Jesus, but they press forward. Verse seven, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. He stands up to respond to them. But after that, he goes right back down to kneeling next to this woman, stooping down to be with her. Jesus' posture here is vitally important. Let me tell you why. 
When you were a kid, I bet someone probably told you not to like lean over while you're sitting at your desk or not to shuffle your feet when you walk or, or to sit up straight in the car when you're riding around town. They told you that because they were concerned about your posture. You've probably been told that you should stand straight up and look people in the eye during an interview so that you come across as professional. That's because our posture, it says something about us. And it's more than just how we sit, it's all of our nonverbals. It's body language, tone, gestures, and actions. It can even be the clothes that we wear or the bumper stickers on our cars. Our posture conveys our attitudes and beliefs to others. It's, it does so significantly more than the actual words that we say. Let me explain what I mean. The University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, they did research on communication, verbal and nonverbal, and they came out with this understanding that there are th essentially three parts of communication, words, tone of voice, and body language. Body language, they said, accounts for 55% of comprehension. Tone of voice accounts for 38%. And the actual words that we say, 7%. This means that when you are talking with someone, 93% of the communication has absolutely nothing to do with what you actually say. We overwhelmingly communicate with our nonverbals. And that's what makes Jesus' posture in this story so important. I love what Hugh Halter says about it in his book, The Tangible Kingdom. He says, notice what Jesus did. He physically postures himself down to the level of the exposed woman and advocates for her. I imagine that the posture of this woman must have been low, bent over, covering her head, probably shaking in fear, tears splashing in the dirt near her feet. She knows what's coming. She might even assume that she deserves the torrent of rocks. Why didn't Jesus just call a spade a spade? Why didn't he just speak truth? He is truth. He can't speak anything but truth. And yet, truth bends down adjusts his posture, and kneels next to her. Jesus' posture here is one of care, one of advocacy, and one of love. For those of us who are a little bit more visual learners, I brought a picture of what it might have looked like from the movie, Son of God. Just take that in for a second. The religious leaders would have already had stones with them when they brought the woman to Jesus, ready to stone her as soon as Jesus gave the word to do so. But remember, Jesus says, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And so they all walk away. This is one of the most powerful scenes, in my opinion, in all of scripture. The religious leaders towering over her, holding stones in their hands as Jesus kneels next to her holding her face in his hands. Then, as the men drop the stones and walk away, Jesus turns to her and he says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No one, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I want to talk about that last phrase, go and sin no more for a second. Because people love to focus in on it. They actually often misinterpret it at the expense of the entire rest of the story in order to make a point about God's judgment of sin in our lives. They talk about how this is the perfect picture, 
between the balance of God's mercy and his judgment. He forgives her, which is merciful, but he also addresses her sin by telling her that she has to stop. I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like, he may have kept the bad guys from killing her, but Jesus didn't neglect to judge her sin. He didn't just freely absolve her. My response is always, of course he did. And not only did he freely absolve her and choose not to judge her sin, he broke the law of Moses in order to do it. I'm not making some outlandish theological claim here. This is quite literally what the story says. According to the law, this woman deserved death for adultery. Jesus prevents her death, sends her accusers away, and freely removes all judgment from her. Not because she deserves it, but because he desires it. Let me say that again. He doesn't do all that. He doesn't forgive her. He doesn't absolve her sin. He doesn't freely refuse condemnation and keep anyone else from condemning her because she deserves it. No, he does so because he desires it. This is what he wants. I bet Jesus was glad that these religious leaders tried to trap him like this. It gave him a chance to show just how radical this all-inclusive family of God really is. Go and sin no more isn't a judgment, and it's obviously not meant as a threat of future condemnation. Jesus just finished saying, I do not condemn you. Despite notions to the, common, to, to the contrary, condemnation of humanity is explicitly not what Jesus put on flesh and came to earth to do. The most famous passage in all of the Bible tells us so. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This truth is further cemented at the very beginning of John's account when he uses this capital W word as a nickname for Jesus. And he says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, that's Jesus, who came from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all, all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John says the law, which called for the stoning of this woman, that came through Moses. But grace and truth, meaning the proper understanding of who God is and what he is all about, came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who John describes as God in the flesh, has made him known to us. This is who God is. This is who he has always, always been. So if it's not for the purpose of judgment or condemnation, why does Jesus say, go and sin no more to this unnamed woman? He says it because God hates sin. Not because he's some legalist holding every human to an impossible moral standard or because he flies off the handle in anger anytime we do something wrong. No, God hates sin because sin hurts his kids. And God hates to see his kids get hurt. I love the way Jonathan Merritt says it. He said, God hates sin, not because God is an angry rule maker, 
but because God loves us without constraint. And God wants each of us to live the abundant life. God wants peace for us. God wants shalom for us. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to recognize the image of God in others and support their flourishing. Any force that resists the abundant life is called sin, and that is a force to which God stands opposed. Whether it's chosen by us or inflicted upon us by an outside force, sin prevents flourishing. And as Jonathan said, God wants each of us to experience flourishing and to live the abundant life. And although I love the way Jonathan put it, he's not the first one to say that. Jesus was. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We have to dispel this notion that God is some loose cannon ready to explode on humanity every time we step out of line. Go and sin no more is not a threat of future judgment. It is the hopeful encouragement of a loving father. Almost every day when my parents dropped me off at school, they would say something like, Make good decisions today, Zach. And they weren't saying that if I didn't make good decisions, I wouldn't have a family to come home to or that they wouldn't love me anymore. I know that because there were plenty of days that I did not make good decisions. I was kicked out of many things. Did I mention that earlier? Many different times. I still hold the record for referrals to the principal at Dahlstrom Middle School. 37 in one year, in case you were wondering. My parents never kicked me out of my family. Even when I got on their last nerve, they still loved me. They encouraged me to make good decisions because they didn't want to see me get hurt or hurt other people. The same is true when Jesus tells this woman and all of us by extension, go and sin no more. Our God is a loving father. It is who he has always been and who he will always be. Jesus, as God in the flesh, demonstrates this throughout his life on earth. I keep thinking about that picture I showed you a moment ago. The religious leaders towering over the woman, holding stones in their hands, but Jesus kneeling next to her, holding her face in his hands. My friends, this is God's relentless posture toward humanity. Look again at verse six. I want to show you something. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Two different times, John tells us that Jesus stoops down. This posture from Jesus is not new. As I just said, this is who God has always been and who he will always be. Our God is a God who stoops down to be with us. Even though he is the creator of the universe and even though it may seem reckless or scandalous to some, God consistently chooses to stoop down in order to be next to his kids. The late Rachel Held Evans says it like this. God stoops. From walking with Adam and Eve through the Garden of Eden to traveling with the liberated Hebrew slaves in a pillar of cloud and fire to slipping into flesh and eating, laughing, suffering, healing, weeping, and dying among us as a part of humanity, the God of Scripture stoops and stoops and stoops and stoops at the heart of the gospel message. 
is the story of a God who stoops to the point of death on a cross. Dignified or not, believable or not, ours is a God perpetually on bended knee, doing everything it takes to convince stubborn and petulant children that they are seen and that they are loved. From Adam and Eve to this woman caught in adultery to you and I on our very worst days, our God is perpetually on bended knee doing everything he can to help us experience fullness of life. There was only one person in the crowd that day who was without sin. Jesus was the only one who could have thrown the first stone, the only one who could have rightfully condemned her. But he doesn't. He does the opposite. They wanted to kick her out, but Jesus welcomed her in. And he doesn't tell her to get herself cleaned up first. He accepts her just as she is lying there in the dirt, overwhelmed by guilt and shame and fear. He chooses her. He doesn't choose some future idealized version of her either. He doesn't say, go and sin no more and then come back and I'll make a decision about whether you get to be a part of the family of God or not. No, Jesus welcomes her in just as she is. He loves her so much that no amount of sin or struggle or brokenness can keep her away from him. And my friends, the same is true for you. No matter who you are or what you have done, there is only one person who has the right to condemn you and he has chosen not to. He has chosen to accept you, to forgive you, and to love you without hesitation or qualification. Even and especially at our lowest points, God stoops down, wipes the tears from our eyes and says, my child, there is no condemnation from me. I love you. I always have. And I will always be by your side. Maybe you're watching or listening right now and and you're struggling to believe this. I don't blame you. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds so different from what you have been told about God, maybe. Or or maybe it's something you know deep down to be true, but you just haven't gotten to experience it in a long time. I don't know your story, but I know mine. And I'm telling you, every single time I've found myself on the ground, God has stooped down next to me. Every single time things have fallen apart in my life, He's been there to help me pick up the pieces. I'll be honest with you though. Sometimes I'm so upset or angry or just blinded by my own tunnel vision that I don't notice him there with me. But every time I actually make a point to look for him, I find him there. Sometimes he shows up through the love of my family, my wife or my boys. Other times it's through a friend reaching out to check on me. I've had God show up in meals dropped off at our house, handwritten notes left on my desk, text messages from friends, a message from a complete stranger online saying they were helped by something that we said or did. Sometimes it's just a feeling, a presence deep down in my soul, the Holy Spirit of God letting me know I'm not alone. Every time I felt rejected, 
God has been there accepting me. Every time I've been kicked out of something, he has said, I will never kick you out of my family. He almost never shows up the same way, but he always, always shows up. Just like he stooped down next to the woman that day, Jesus stoops down next to us every time we need him to. Like I said, I don't know your story. I don't know what you're going through. I do know this has been an incredibly difficult year for all of us in all different kinds of ways. So I'm not gonna give you this big, lengthy application, this long to-do list. All I am asking you to do is to look for God's presence in whatever you're walking through right now. Look for him to show up in mysterious and beautiful ways. Because as Rachel just said, our is a God perpetually stooped down on bended knee, doing everything it takes to convince us, his children, that we are seen and that we are loved. Look for him there, my friends. I promise he will meet you there. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of you in awe of the fact that you are the creator God, the one who knit the universe together, who spoke it into existence. Scripture says you formed us out of the ground. You placed us here in this world, this world that we ended up breaking, this world that we continue to deal with the consequences of sin and death and evil and struggle and pain. And yet, God, as you looked down, as the creator God of the universe, at your kids struggling and hurting. You didn't turn your head. You didn't look away. You didn't say, oh, they deserve it, even if we probably did. You looked down and you were moved with love and compassion, so much so that you put on flesh, came to earth as Jesus and showed us exactly who you are and who you have always been, which is a God who stoops, who sits next to us in the brokenness, who picks up the pieces of our broken lives and helps us put them back together again. God, we pray that as we battle whatever brokenness we are walking through right now, individually, corporately, as a church, in our nation, in our world, God, that we would look at where you are showing up. Find those places where you are stooping down to be with us. God, give us comfort. Give us hope. Help us feel the radical inclusion that you have lavished on all of us and then help us to lavish it on everyone we meet, no matter who they are or what they've done. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.